We're driving down Route 84 from Abiquiu, New Mexico to Santa Fe. Nick's in the driver's seat, and our dog Luca is resting his head in my lap. It's late spring, and this area is a lot greener than I thought it would be. Low green bushes blanket sandstone cliffs, and I see big peaks in the distance. It's sunny and dusty, and as we weave around the highway, inching toward New Mexico's capital city, what strikes me is how empty it is. It seems like Santa Fe somehow managed to avoid urban sprawl, which is hard for the Californian in me to comprehend. One minute we're surrounded by open space, a patchwork of tans and greens and blues. And the next minute we're pulling into Santa Fe, a town that regularly shows up on lists of the world's greatest places. I've had this dream of living in a small city with easy access to nature, a place where you can find music venues, art galleries, and good restaurants alongside ski hills and hiking trails. A place where housing is affordable-ish, or at least a lot more affordable than San Francisco. Does this type of place even exist in the US? And if it does, is it Santa Fe? I'm Mia Sullivan, and you're listening to Places, a podcast documenting stories from offbeat American locations, from a girl living in a van. In this episode, we're gonna explore Santa Fe, New Mexico, the city different, as locals call it. I'm gonna try to suss out whether Santa Fe is the food mecca and outdoorsy person's paradise that people say it is, and whether it's a place Nick and I might wanna live. We're gonna start by digging into Santa Fe's food scene. Let's go. Traveling around the U.S. has made me and Nick realize how much we really value good food. And after spending three weeks in the desert, sustaining ourselves on quinoa and salad, my mouth is watering. So after we turn off the highway and pull into the city, the first thing we do is head to La Chosa. We heard about La Chosa from a Santa Fe native while we are hiking around the Colorado River in Arizona. She told us we had to check it out, that it's a local spot that serves great traditional New Mexican food. We squeeze our van into the restaurant's skinny parking lot and head inside. 
La Chosa is a big restaurant. Its walls are salmon-colored and lined with eclectic paintings. We're here for lunch on a Monday, but it's bustling. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Just put the chorvena there and then we'll the other one. These plates are hot. Ooh, okay, so they just brought the food. A lot of food. They bring out large plates that are overflowing with cheesy, decadent deliciousness. So we have the enchilada plate with carne adobada with red and green chili, pozole soup, and then we have the taquitos and the chile relleno. Mm. Very tasty. Yeah, we ordered a lot of food. Don't judge us. My favorite thing is the enchiladas. They're stuffed with marinated pork and cheese and smothered in red and green chili sauce. The smell of the chili sauce is intoxicating. It tingles up my nostrils as I shovel layered blue tortillas into my mouth. Each bite is spicy, cheesy, and comforting, like an oversized food fleece. New Mexicans are serious about their chili, and they seem to use it in pretty much every dish. Chili is a spicy sauce made from red or green chili peppers. People have been growing chili peppers, or chilies, in this area for over 400 years. New Mexicans are also pretty serious about their sopapillas. The sopapilla is like a big, fluffy, square, breaded thing. I like to like fill it with all the stuff that's on the plate. So the carne adobada, the corn, the lettuce, the beans, the chile sauce, the, basically everything. It's just like a really delicious conduit for all the other deliciousness. Everything's great. Good. Yeah. Okay, this isn't the healthiest lunch, but it's really good. I want to learn more about New Mexican food, so I talked to the manager of La Chosa after lunch. My name is Alfonso J. Romero, and I am the senior manager slash general manager here at La Chosa. So could you talk a little bit about the food and the philosophy behind La Chosa? The food is basically northern New Mexican cooking. So it's the type of food that I was raised on, that I grew up on, and it wasn't until, I want to say, the 80s where it started to really kind of boom and get really popular. Not very many people would talk about New Mexico green chili or New Mexico chili at all, but it kind of just took off. The red and green chili that we get, we've been getting from, from southern New Mexico, from the Mesilla Valley. There's a particular farm that we have been getting all of our chili from. Grown here, authentic red, authentic green. The different farms that you get chili from gives you a different flavor. La Chosa, it's owned by the Carswell family, which has another restaurant downtown, the Shed. And we've been serving that same type of cuisine here for the past 37 years. The Shed since, geez, I wanna say the 1950s. Do you think you could talk a little bit about like what cultural influences that like New Mexican food pulls in? I think a lot of the influence came from Spain, came from Mexico, 
and then from the Native American population as well. New Mexico is so diverse. New Mexico itself was part of the Mexican Empire, part of the Spanish Empire, and now, of course, part of the United States. And if you look at the food, you kind of see a little bit of all of that in the cooking, well, in the city itself. I love the local aspect of La Chosa's food. The fact that their menu is so based on the chilies grown nearby. I could see us coming here a lot. Next, we check out a Mexican restaurant with a farm-to-table vibe. We're at Paloma. We're eating a banana donut mousse. I think we should have ordered two. <laughs> it's really good. It's like, what type of donut is it? Paloma is the type of place you'd want to spend every Friday night at. It's in an old adobe building with high ceilings, rounded doorways, and thick white walls. It's warm and lively inside, and the lighting's just right. Comfy pillows accented with pinks and reds and blues are nestled into booths, and strings of orange marigolds hang from the ceiling. Did I mention the food's amazing? I ask Nick about his favorite dish. Oh, no, it's just like, honestly, it's really hard to say because it just all worked out really well together. Ceviche to start, on point. The ceviche was fresh, refreshing, and a bit spicy. And then the, the chicken was just so moist and tender with the mole sauce. The chicken mole was so good. Best mole I've had by far. The light brown mole sauce was whipped, delicate, and slightly chocolatey. Quesadilla, great follow-up. A little bit more like comfort food-wise, like a little, you know, cheesy with the, the, the homemade tortilla. The squash blossom quesadilla tasted savory and delicious. It's made with a blue corn tortilla that's baked in-house from local heirloom corn. Well, I didn't even mention the cocktails. Yeah, the cocktails are really good. I think the best cocktail we had was the off-menu complimentary one. Yeah, she basically just like took the remaining juices of the ceviche and she was like, oh, here, let me go add this. And then she brought back a little like cocktail drink with the juices and mezcal added it. Was, oh, she said it was the best Bloody Mary you could have. It's so good. The woman Nick's referring to, the woman who made us a complimentary mezcal cocktail with our leftover ceviche juices, is Marja. She's tall and charismatic, with striking red hair. I ask Marja if she'd be up for chatting about Paloma and the food scene in Santa Fe. She says yes, and we schedule something for later in the week. Marja invites me into her home and even makes me breakfast. This feels particularly special after 14 months of social distancing. Now we have COVID vaccines, 
and can do this sort of thing. I'm just trying to make a one pot thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm making red chili here. I'm gonna let this cook down while these sausages cook and then I'm gonna push the eggs right in the red chili. I try to cook in ways so I don't have a lot of cleanup. Yes, yeah, that's that my, very my smart thing. This is a lot of black tea for one morning. It's really good. So it's, it's a good. black tea latte? It's a black tea latte and it's so made good. with a French tea that's called Eros, like the god. And it is, um, it has, it's black tea with lots of flowers in it. So it has bachelor button and roses and lavender and all sorts of different stuff in it. So my name is Marja Martin and I am the owner of, and manager of Paloma Restaurant here in Santa Fe. I didn't know this before our conversation, but Marja actually used to live in San Francisco. So I grew up in Dallas, then went on to San Francisco to culinary school. Left San Francisco for a job, came to Santa Fe, sort of fell in love with Santa Fe, went back to San Francisco briefly, working in kitchens the whole time, and then came back to Santa Fe for good when I was 30, which was 26 years ago. And Santa Fe was a booming, in my opinion, very sophisticated food town when I moved here from San Francisco. People used to ask me, do you miss San Francisco? And I said, no, not really, except for the, maybe the Thai food. It's very exciting here right now in terms of food. People are doing interesting things and focusing on local, which is great, local produce, local meat, which I think we do very much at Paloma. This was an agricultural community and has been forever and is really booming again. I think we have one of the most vibrant, interesting farmers markets in the United States, without a doubt. Do you think you could talk a little bit about the different farms that you guys go to and then just maybe some of the produce that really excites you? Absolutely. Freshies of New Mexico, they focus on peppers, tomatoes, they grow mushrooms, um, oyster mushrooms, and fruiting things like gorgeous uh, peaches and apricots and that sort of thing. That is their main, those are their main focuses. So what that does for our food at Paloma is as these things come into season, that's what we buy, and we you know, train our menu around that. We have sauces on the menu at all times, but they're particularly delicious in the summer <laughs> when we have access to those tomatoes and peppers. We shop with Matt Romero, who's a kind of a famous farmer here in town. There's more and more local meat. We get pasture-raised beef from a local, kind of a, it's a Colorado and New Mexico cooperative. So that's, that's important to us. Even though it's not written all over our menu, I think people inherently know that our food is light, fresh, healthy, vital. I think they feel it. You eat it, and you leave feeling good. Could you talk a little bit about like the concept behind Paloma and sort of how it came to be? Absolutely. So I was a caterer here in town for a good solid long time, you know, almost 15 years. and. I met my chef, Nathan Mays, my business partner, on another job. We were working together, and I really liked him. We have a similar sensibility about food. We have a similar background. He's also from Texas. And I had no intention of opening a restaurant, but when I met him, I thought, we're going to do this. Let's make the restaurant that we don't have here. So we have great taco trucks here, and we have an, a wonderful kind of high-end Mexican restaurant here in town, but we don't have a community gathering space where you can have really delicious, fresh, scratch-made food that's Mexican. We really don't, where you can sit down and be with other people. That's what Paloma is. We created the restaurant that we were missing from Texas and from growing up there. 
we are inspired by the food of Mexico. Nathan and I also have traveled a lot in Mexico. I've lived in Oaxaca City, and I keep going back. I cannot stop going back to Oaxaca City. It is just infinitely interesting to me, and sort of the culinary center of Mexico. And that is inspirational to us. So our food is inspired by that region, but we borrow from the cuisine of, of all of Mexico. In terms of like the interior of the restaurant, like I love it. What was your kind of process with building that out? So we let the building speak to us. We looked at what was there, the shape of the building, meditated on it a lot. And I designed it um, using pictures, honestly, of, of places that I had visited in Mexico, in, in the Condesa area of Mexico City, a couple of restaurants in Los Angeles that I was inspired by, and just kind of put it together. The real secret, I think, to Paloma is that I have lived here a long time, and I know a lot of artists and artisans, and I felt so supported by my artist friends in building Paloma. I have a friend named Lex Lucius who did all of our metalwork. My friend Chase Haynes did all of the finishes on the floor and the ceiling. I bought things from The Raven, which is a wonderful consignment store owned by my friend Katerina. So I was drawing from my friends, and there's art on the walls from my friends. There are textiles on the walls from Oaxaca. We did visit Oaxaca and buy, and we went on a buying trip there and got details like our tortilla chip baskets and things like that. Um, all of our glassware is hand-blown in Mexico from recycled glass. So definitely inspired by trips and local people, the benefit of knowing all these talented people who live here. I asked Marja about the bright marigolds hanging from Paloma's ceiling. Marigolds are a spiritual flower in Mexico. And I had a fun little mishap that you'll like. Um, for Day of the Dead, maybe four years ago, I thought I was ordering 250 each pieces of marigolds, but I ordered something like 2,500 pieces. I mean, it was ridiculous. Oh, it was no. right before service. And these casket-sized boxes started coming in. And I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? I had to call my friends. And they ran down with scissors and helped me decapitate all of these gorgeous marigolds. The scent was intoxicating. And we strung them. And then that is now a theme at Paloma. So oh, every yeah. year we restring the marigolds. We do it again and hang them from the chandeliers and put them on every flat surface. And the whole room just smells delicious. What about Santa Fe kind of made you like fall in love and want to actually like build your life here? There are four distinct seasons in Santa Fe, and I have grown up in places that did not have that. <laughs> Dallas has two seasons, hot and less hot. <laughs> and San Francisco has sort of a kind of a mono season. I love the four seasons here. It's beautiful. I love what that does for uh, food as well, you know, where you can focus on seasonal produce. Um, small, sweet town um, for an extrovert like me. It's possible to know, to truly know a lot of the people who live here. And I did raise my child, my one and only child here. <laughs> and the community that I have is very supportive. And I think it's a great place to raise kids. Not everybody agrees with that, but I think it's a great place. Are there like specific things about Santa Fe that um, you feel like are really like positive for raising a kid? The four seasons, you know, visiting the mountain. I mean, I have a snowboarder on my hands <laughs> with my son, but he's also an avid hiker. He um, cares a lot about birds. He's not a, you know, a birder, but he cares and can identify a lot of them. 
I think that's very healthy for kids, you know, this love of the outdoors. Um, I have my son, who's 20, and all of his friends. They are outdoor people. So it's really about love of the outdoors. That's cool. a big part of living in Santa Fe. I think access to the outdoors is super important for kids, too. And I know it's really important to me to live in a place where there's easy access to nature and where people really value getting outside and making it a priority. Santa Fe's restaurants, vibrant farmer's market, and community vibe definitely appeal to me. But I want to hear more about what it's like to live here from a local who spends a lot of time outside. So I get in touch with someone. I met Emma in March 2020 while I was reporting on businesses that were pivoting because of the pandemic. Emma had been developing a reusable travel fork when travel virtually came to a halt. She quickly pivoted to a reusable disinfecting wipe project, which I thought was a really cool idea. Emma's a big outdoors enthusiast, like me, so I thought she'd be a good person to talk to about life in Santa Fe. So could you introduce yourself and just say a little bit about what you do here in Santa Fe? Sure. My name is Emma Rose Cohen, and I am the CEO and founder of Final. At Final, we make reusable products that replace single-use plastic. So our first product was a reusable collapsible straw. It goes on your keychain, pops out like magic, and you don't have to use single-use plastic. And what's, what's your cat's name? She's Rar. Emma's place is on top of a hill, about 10 minutes from downtown. She has floor-to-ceiling windows that look out over the mountains and lots of houseplants. A swing chair hangs from her ceiling, and an elk skull hangs on the wall. Yeah, so I grew up here in Santa Fe, and my entire high school time, I was just so anxious to get out. And then as soon as I left, I started missing it. And it just kind of kept drawing me back. We call it jokingly the land of entrapment because the state slogan is the land of enchantment. But you just always get pulled back. It's the land. It's the food. It's the people. It's the spirit of the place. It's, it's all just really special. And I, I love it. Cool. So it looks like you went to college in California in Santa Barbara. You lived in California for a little bit. I'm just curious about kind of like what you thought about California and kind of what made you want to move back here. Yeah, so I went to school at UCSB in Santa Barbara, and it was such a nice break from here. I think growing up here, I didn't have the full appreciation for Santa Fe. It was also not nearly as cool as it is now. It was kind of like a retirement community. So moving to Santa Barbara was like, everything I could ever want. You know, I had the beach and a lot of young people and it was amazing. But Santa Fe has changed a lot in the last few years um, with Meow Wolf kind of putting it on the map and making it a destination location for younger people to come visit. And then once people come visit, they are like, wait, there's amazing restaurants, really cool people, uh, beautiful mountains, and it's affordable. Like, so a lot of people are starting to move here now 
which is great. We've been getting an influx of new humans. Cool. Can you talk a little bit about Meow Wolf? Yeah. So Meow Wolf is this amazing artist uh, collaboration. So basically what they did here in Santa Fe is took the abandoned bowling alley and they turned it into an immersive art experience. So think of like a museum, but in a way where you can actually interact and play. And so they built a house within this bowling alley, but there's like trap doors and secret passageways and, and all this crazy stuff that just blows your mind around every corner. And, you know, they started off as a small collective here in town and started doing bigger and bigger projects and eventually got funding from George R. R. Martin, uh, the creator of Game of Thrones. And so they were able to do this installation here in Santa Fe. It took off and it was massively popular, you know, went viral on Instagram. And, and so now they actually just opened one in Las Vegas, Nevada, and they're building one in Denver. So it's just really cool to see, you know, a local... Uh, organization being incredibly successful, giving jobs to artists and expanding and people loving it and really reacting to the to the concept. Cool. That's awesome. So I guess I'm just like generally curious what it's like to live here. You know, we have incredible restaurants. We have people from New York come and be like blown away at our restaurants. There's lots of art galleries and fun things to do. And it kind of hits on all of my favorite things. I love the outdoors and so I do a lot of biking and skiing and horseback riding. Yeah, and it's just like beautiful everywhere. So I think if you're in a big city and you come to Santa Fe, you're like, wow. We've got like pretty specific uh, building ordinances. So like everything has to be a certain color and kind of fit in with the vibe. And so it you definitely feel like you're in um, a very different city. It's not similar to any city with the adobe and the the vegas and the you know the restress and all of the cool little like things that are so specific to santa fe it's it's very aesthetically pleasing emma's talking about santa fe's pueblo revival architecture style many of the homes and buildings here follow this style defined by thick stucco walls with rounded edges and flat roofs i could talk more about the architecture here but you should just listen to Stuckoed in Time from 99% Invisible. I put a link in the show notes. So what's your favorite thing about Santa Fe? My favorite thing about Santa Fe is the access to nature, for sure. Um, I live kind of close to the bottom of the ski basin, and so in the winters I can go up before work at 6 a.m., get a lap in, and get down and you know work all day. In the summers, it's like we've got our long days. And so after work, I can go drive five minutes and have amazing biking trails. And then number two would have to be the food. Cool. <laughs> Green chili, biking, skiing. Do you think you could talk a little bit more about kind of the dynamics you've been seeing with like the population changing? Yeah. I think, you know, first off, we're seeing a big increase in housing prices, a lot of the market being taken over by Airbnb, which I think a lot of people are frustrated with. The median home price in Santa Fe hit $600,000 this year. That might sound reasonable to you if you've been house hunting in San Francisco, but it's really high for Santa Fe. 600K is a 35% increase in housing prices since last year. 35%. Housing prices in Santa Fe have been compounded by a lack of rental inventory, and Airbnb is partly to blame. 
As of 2019, about 1,500 homes in Santa Fe were being rented out for short-term stays, while there was an estimated shortage of over 7,300 rental units. This seems to be a common problem in desirable mountain towns across the U.S. There isn't enough housing for the number of people who want to live in these places. I ask Emma about the types of jobs in Santa Fe. We've had a lot of new tech move in. You know, Albuquerque has a really big film industry. They film a lot of movies in between here and Albuquerque. So, yeah, it's cheap. And there's a ton of land and a lot of people in the film industry work here. Tech and film are shiny fixtures in Santa Fe's economy, but Santa Feans are most likely to work in retail, healthcare, or hospitality. And the median household income in Santa Fe hovers below $58,000. That means if a median household earner were to buy a median-priced home, 66% of their income would go to their home payment, which is way too much. Now that I'm getting into this, the economics of Santa Fe don't really feel great. If we moved here, would we be stoking the flames of a housing crisis? And if we were to bring remote jobs with us, would we feel like we were taking up precious housing stock while not contributing to the local economy enough? Here's what Emma has to say. You know, I understand why people want to move here. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's affordable, especially compared to California. And I'm like, yes, let's bring in more young people or old people, whatever, all the people. But I think that the most important thing is that people are respecting the, the nature, the community, the indigenous peoples here, and, and that's really important. I assumed COVID was driving population growth in Santa Fe and making the housing shortage worse. But the data that's available actually doesn't indicate that there's been significant population growth since the pandemic. Santa Fe's population is currently growing at a rate of 0.55%, which is pretty darn close to the half of a percentage growth rate the city's seen over the past seven years. Maybe the population is growing, but it's just not reflected in the data yet. Or maybe new people are just trying Santa Fe on for a month or a year during this time when remote office jobs seem like the norm. We're not like fully cool yet. We're getting there. And I think COVID has really helped because a lot of people wanted to get out of cities. They wanted to go somewhere new. And like Santa Fe just sounds romantic and lovely. And it is. What does Santa Fe mean to you? Well, the name Santa Fe means holy faith. And so... I think that being out here with all this nature and all the animals, there's deer and elk and lizards and snakes and horny toads. You just have faith in in the divine power of, of nature, of, you know, whatever you want to call it, but something bigger than yourself. Okay, Emma really got me wanting to check out some local hiking spots. So Luca and I hike the Sun Mountain Trail. It's within city limits, near Museum Hill. As we climb up, 
We pass pink rocks, mountain yucca, and prickly pear cactuses blooming with red and white flowers. We have the trail mostly to ourselves. Luca and I are at the top of the Sun Mountain Trail. I'm just looking out and I can see a ton of different peaks. I just expected this area to be more brown, but there's a ton of green, ton of trees, and it might just be the time of year. But um, It was comforting yeah, for me to hear from Marja and Emma, two people who've lived in California, but live here now and haven't looked back. As I look out towards Santa Fe, beyond the city and out toward a tan and green patchwork of wide open space, I'm reminded that this place is missing one big thing I love. A large body of water. There's no ocean, no bay, not even a big lake. There are rivers, but that's not the same. Santa Fe doesn't have everything, but it does have hiking, snowboarding, great food, nice people. And it's one of the first places we've been on this trip that I could see myself actually falling in love with. And just to have that sense that I could truly be happy living somewhere that isn't the West Coast feels pretty good. This episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Mia Sullivan. Nick Beishu is our associate producer. Additional editing by Christina Sullivan. Original music for this episode was composed by Tim Vitulo. And additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme is by Brent Curridan. Our show art is by Christine Hostetler and Michelle Anderson. And a special thanks to Blair Sullivan. I'm Mia Sullivan. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hey. When I interview people for my show, I feel like I really get to know them. I spend time asking people personal questions, and then I listen to their voices over and over as I edit. By the time I finish an episode, I've spent hours listening to my interview subjects' voices. I interviewed Marja in May. Recently, I heard the devastating news that her son died in a car accident. The news hit me really hard, and I've been thinking about it every day since. Marja's son, Leo, was in the car with his girlfriend, Lisette. Lisette survived the crash, thankfully, but was badly injured. Marja put together a GoFundMe 
to cover Lisette's mounting medical expenses. And as a testament to the amazing community that surrounds Marja, they already hit their goal, but I'm sure they could use some more. So it would mean so much to me, and I'm sure to Marja, if you considered supporting Lisette. If you are thinking of supporting places this month, please support Lisette and Marja instead. I've included a link to their GoFundMe in my show notes. Okay, thanks for listening.